Um, today, we're continuing in our series, Dear Church, as we are walking through seven letters that Jesus wrote through the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. So if you want to find your way to Revelation 2, that's where we're going to be. And there are seven cities that Jesus wrote to in Asia Minor. Now, the book of Revelation can be kind of intimidating for a lot of us. Some of us kind of re start reading through it and like, what is going on here? Can I give you just like the one piece of context that might help make Revelation a little less intimidating for you? Um, so Revelation is written in a very specific style called the apocalyptic style. In fact, what we translate as Revelation is actually the Greek word apocalypso, which, which so we could translate Revelation as the book of the apocalypse instead. That's more intimidating, right? But no, no, no. Uh, apocalyptic writing is actually very common back then, and it would draw from Old Testament themes and sources. And so a Jewish person who would pick up this book would not be as nearly intimidated by it as we are. In fact, they would see these things from the Old Testament, like, oh, yeah, yeah, I get that, I get that. The numerology in there wouldn't freak them out like, that, like it does for us. Um, and, and so what we have to realize when we're looking at the book of Revelation is to not read into it our times. It was not written for us. It was written for a different time, different place, and different season in a different kind of style that doesn't make sense to us. In fact, it was written in a way to help keep the government from really understanding what they're writing about. So can I just suggest that whatever your view is on Revelation, it just kind of hold it a little bit loosely. I've seen enough people be wrong about their interpretation about Revelation to know that what I think is true about Revelation may not be true. Just, just, just think about that. But what I have seen as we've been going through these seven letters in Revelation is that Revelation is a book for us here today and now. We should not skip over it. And in fact, as we go through these letters, it, it, it strikes me that despite changes in, in how we view the world in technology and circumstances, that this book speaks to us directly because all of these things, the way that people sin and view the world, has not changed at all. So this is for us. This is as John says at the end, to him who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That meant them. That means us. So let's dive into this letter to Thyatira. Thyatira is the smallest city addressed of these seven. In fact, it was so small, it's kind of hard to find anything about it. Um, all the other churches were kind of on hills or mountaintops, and they're kind of defensible. This church, uh, this town, was in the middle of this big plain. And so it was very indefensible, um, but it was also an important trade route. So they built the fort. The Romans built a fort in this town, and they built uh, a trade in this industry um, that was mostly uh, trade guilds. And you'll see this uh, later. But it's important for us to notice, uh, for us here in Milledgeville, like, for us, it seems like Milledgeville, man, we're so small. What this letter tells us is, is Jesus cares for the Atlantas and the New Yorks, but he also cares about us in Milledgeville. So now, despite its small size, it, it receives the longest of the seven letters. So we're going to go by it kind of section by section. Um, and this one starts off with this introduction. To the angel of the church of Thyatira writes, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. This part, Son of God, is interesting because it's the only time in Revelation that Jesus is referred to as the Son of God. Normally, John, the writer, 
usually refers to him as the son of man. That helps him relate to us as humans, as individuals. And so normally, this is not a terminology John would use. I think there's a reason for this. Um, in Thyatira, there was a home to a very special temple for the, the god Apollos. Apollos in Greek and Roman um, literature was the son of Zeus. So Zeus was the main god, so the son of God. I, I think what John is doing here in saying that this is the words of the son of God is he is setting himself apart against Apollos, this god in Thyatira. And we see this description taken out of all of these descriptions in the beginning of their passages are taken out of Revelation 1. Um, but we see this description as, as Jesus with eyes of fire, blazing fire. And this is important for us to understand the rest of the letter because really what it's saying to us is that Jesus sees and understands all. He sees and understands all. Just like fire burns through wood and it refines and smelts metal and you can make it pure, Jesus knows your innermost being and who you are and why you do what you do. And feet of bronze, um, this is an interesting look back on uh, a vision that Nebuchadnezzar had and Daniel kind of translated for him. Nebuchadnezzar saw this statue and had different parts and the very feet of clay and a rock comes and crashes into the clay it topples what jesus is saying here is that he stands forever that he lasts when others don't that these other lesser gods the gods of false religion or false identity will eventually one by one fall to jesus that he sees through your excuses and he knows who you are as that's both terrifying and comforting at the same time isn't it now, after giving his credentials, Jesus gives this remarkable compliment to those in Thyatira. He says, I know your deeds, your love and faith and your service and your perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Man, wouldn't it be great to get a letter addressed to you saying that about you? Like, that's pretty awesome. Like, unlike the believers in Ephesus who had lost their love, Thyatira is abounding in love. This is a church that understand, understood what mattered the most to God. They understood that they, they should love and care for one another, and they were doing that. They were in community groups with one another, caring for one another, go, going to hospitals and participating in life with one another. And they expressed that love through service. Jesus said, I know your service. This was an active church. They weren't interested in just going to church. They wanted to be the church. And that loving service was increasing. And he noticed that their faith and persistence, they were learning to trust Jesus more and more, and their faith grew deeper and deeper. And they showed patient endurance. Man, I think, I think that we could even say some of these things about Northridge. Like, not to be boastful or anything, but man, I love how Northridge loves one another through their community groups, how they love their community and they're serving and, and, and they're taking their next steps and doing more than what they did at first. And that's our mission as a church. Our mission is to help you take your next steps closer to Christ. And I think that maybe, just maybe, Jesus would say these about us. But Jesus follows up this, this amazing compliment with this cutting criticism. You, you would think that a church that is so loving, so faithful, so devoted would be the perfect church. Can I tell you something? There are no perfect churches. Because churches are filled with imperfect people. And so there are no perfect churches. He says this about them. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, 
who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of their ways. It got real there, real quick, didn't it? You'll recognize that name, Jezebel. Um, That's one of the most wicked queens from ancient Israel. She was married to like the most wicked king, Ahab. Um, But she wanted to kill all of God's prophets. And she led the people of Israel into idolatry and sexual immorality. Like she was a bad person. And so this is not the real name of the person in Thyatira. But by comparing this person, who they all would have known, to Jezebel, uh, that's a pretty damning thing to call her out like that. Now, on the surface, her teaching may, may have seemed a little bit like the Nicolaitans that we've seen in the last couple of letters. But it, it is different in some important ways. See, as I said earlier, Thyatira was primarily an industrial area. And it was filled with many trade guilds. Think like a, a, a labor union. And you had to be a part of these labor unions. And this incorporated like leather working, bronze working, pottery making, clothes making, dyeing. And if you were not one of these labor unions or trade guilds, basically you could have no job. And every week, these trade guilds who had their own patron god, every week they would come together in their guild hall or or like a civic center. And they would have these massive feasts where they would sacrifice to these idols and they would have some kind of sexual entertainment. And so if a Christian who was a part of this trade guild did not want to participate in it, they were likely to lose their job. And so what this teacher, this Jezebel, was probably teaching was, hey, God doesn't want you to not have a job. Jesus, God said that you're supposed to be productive and have a job and care for your people, so you should have a job. So so go along with this. It's okay. I don't know what she reasoned. It doesn't really tell us what. But she, she talked these people into committing adultery and idolatry. And it's here in these verses that we come to one of the main tensions that the church has faced since the beginning. Faced it then, we face it today. And it's the idea of toleration. Now, the problem in Thyatira is that they, they tolerated a false teacher. Now, let me clarify, I don't mean somebody who was honestly mistaken and accidentally taught something that was wrong. No, this was somebody who knew what they were teaching. They claimed to be a prophetess and they told lies. This is a false teacher as the Bible uses it. But rather, they were tolerating a woman, a liar. That's it. And, and she led many of them into immoral conduct. And what we see here is that the church, the church is called to a higher standard. As angry as Jesus was at this Jezebel, and she was angry. I mean, he was angry at her. You saw that. As angry as he was at her, he was actually very angry at the rest of the church who tolerated her teaching and didn't put an end to it. See, the church in Thyatira was the exact opposite of Ephesus. See, Ephesus was doctrinally sound, but they had no love. Thyatira had lots of love, but they had no doctrine, and they allowed false teaching. So this tension, the biggest tension that we probably face in the church today 
And there seems to be two kind of extremes that people or churches tend to go to today. So you have one where it's accepting of every lifestyle and, and all that's going in church. And then there's the other extreme of not allowing anybody into your church who isn't exactly like you, who isn't pure. Like these two extremes are, are, are not healthy. I mean, why? Neither of these are biblically accurate. Just as law without love is legalism, love with no law is just a license for immorality. Truth matters. Morals matter. Love is supreme. But genuine love must be balanced with truth. That's what Jesus said, or Paul said in Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love, you will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. Can I, can I tell you a secret? This church has sinners in it. Guess what? I am one of them. So are you. We are all sinners, every single one of us. There's a couple of clarifying distinctions that perhaps we should make to understand this tension. See, the problem in Thyatira is believers, and perhaps even more specifically, leaders in the church who are telling lies that are saying that, that, that sin is okay, and even sinning themselves and trying to convince others that that's okay. That, that is what is clearly wrong, and that is who ought to be thrown out of the church, not tolerated. I am a sinner, but I am not trying to convince you that my sin is okay. God has convicted me of my sin. I know it is wrong, and I am working on it day in, day out, and I will never be perfect until the day I die. The same is true for you. See, what we ought to hope for and expect as a church is that people who come through our doors, when searchers, when non-believers, when they come through their, our doors, they will have sin and perhaps even what some might call overt sin. Our job is to love them and to lead them into a relationship with Christ where he can explain what his law and rules are but here's the thing until they accept it for themselves they are under a different authority they are under god's eternal everlasting authority but they are not yet under the church's authority just to ask yourself can you think of a better place for them to be a, a better place for you to be the church was always meant to be a hospital for the sick always jesus said who what did he say he said i am here for the sick. It's not the healthy that need a doctor. It's the sick that need a doctor. This is the best place for you and for them to be. And if you are driving someone out of the church based on something that doesn't even apply to them, standards that don't yet apply to them, then you are keeping them from hearing the life-giving truth and love of who Jesus is and keeping them from understanding what possibly can, can change their life. And that, to me, seems like a very dangerous place to be. It is very possible to love somebody and not approve of what they're doing. It is absolutely possible to love someone and not affirm of how they're living. We are called to love our enemies. How much more can we love those who we simply just disagree with, who live differently than us? Now, on the other side of this tension, Jesus is addressing this letter to step into the role of a believer. When you say, yes, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, when you step into the role of believer, you now come under the authority of the church. Now, the church has a say in how you live. And, and we, especially 
as, as leaders in a church, we have a responsibility to call one another to a healthy, responsible, biblical, leading, striving for holy living, avoiding sin, and moving along that scale of looking more and more and more like Jesus, continuing to take those steps. And this is even more true of those who step into leadership at a church. We are held to a higher standard. That's why we have the structure that we do here at Northridge. It's all about accountability. You, you are accountable to your community group leaders. Community group leaders are, are accountable to the staff of the church. The staff of the church is accountable to the leadership of the church. The leadership is accountable to our elders. Our elders are accountable to you. If you are a member of church, you get to affirm elders in our church. They're, they're, we all have a responsibility to hold one another to a higher standard to look more and more like Jesus. But let's be clear that we are all sinners. And so when we do that, we ought to do it in love. Let's bring us to our next point made in this letter concerning our relationship with Christ. It's the fact that Jesus will hold us personally accountable. We, you and I, are personally accountable for what we do, what the, the thoughts in our head and our actions. Look at verse 23. Then, so after he has punished this Jezebel, then all the churches will know that I am he who searches the hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. You, you see that? According to your deeds. It, it's not based on what anybody else has done to you or, or by you. It, it, it has to do with you. The Jezebel is not being punished for the actions of her followers. And her followers are not being punished for the actions of Jezebel. They will be punished if they choose to follow what she's teaching. It's up to them. John repeats this theme later on in chapter 20. He says, And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which was the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and the death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. We're not big on the hell and fire and brimstone kind of teaching here at Northridge. But it is, I just want to make it very clear to you. If you are new to Northridge, if you're new to the church, there is a thing called sin. And that is when we go against God in any way. Each and every single one of us is a sinner. And the punishment for sin is death and eternal separation from God. See, that's the thing I don't think we talk about enough. So, so we talk about hell and fire and brimstone, but eternal separation from God, the one who loves you even when he knows your innermost thoughts, the, the one who created you and loves you, Eternal separation from it. I think the only, the, the, the closest glimpse that we can get, and it's just a small glimpse of hell that we can see, is in clinical depression. Where you can be surrounded by people and feel utterly alone. Where, where, where you, you feel like your only option is to kill yourself. I, I think that's the closest to hell that we can see here on earth. Can you, can you imagine Eternal separation from your loved ones? I don't, I don't think we can truly grasp this. I think we ought to have a healthy fear of hell. And, and fear isn't always a bad thing. Like as a parent, like I would love if my, parent, my, my children 
obeyed me just because they love me. Like, right? That, that's my ideal. Hey, guess what? My kids are not perfect. And they do not obey me just because they love me. Sometimes they obey me for fear of punishment, the fear of losing uh, a dessert or TV or something fun. Okay, it's not that I'm on a power trip. It's not that I'm vindictive. It's the fact that I am a parent and I recognize that I have a job of educating my children and making them into healthy adults that can understand and know how to be patient and kind and unselfish and loving. And it is far better for them to learn it while they are under my care and under my household than to learn it in the real world. It is a hard place. So yes, I, I put fear into my children occasionally to save them, to, to keep them from being hurt. Don't run into the street. Why? Because you might die, right? Fear can be a good thing. And hopefully my prayer is that someday that they will recognize and appreciate the fear that I put in them then as a way to make them healthy, God-fearing adults. So with this warning of the immoral teacher should never be uh, tolerated within the church, we're led to the final piece of this letter, command. He says, now I say to the rest of you, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except for to hold on to what you have until I come back. Hold on, hold fast, hang on, keep on keeping on. Remain consistent in what you've done. Continue to grow in your love and your faith and service and patience. Don't give up. See, for those who didn't give in to this, this Jezebel's teaching, all Jesus could ask was for them to keep on doing what they're doing. They were serving one another. They were loving one another. They were being dependable and reliable. They were willing to live faithfully different and potentially even lose their jobs, their employment, and all Jesus could ask them was that they hold tight to these things. Hold tight, church. Every one of us needs to be reminded that we have not yet arrived. Until Jesus comes again, we are not finished. You will never arrive, never be a fully mature Christian, no longer needing to grow. Maybe, maybe you've been in the church your whole life, and you served like crazy when you were younger, but now at the younger man's gate. Right? Somebody else can now serve and lead. Here's the thing. Until you, until you are called home or he comes again, you are not done yet. You are here to be a shining example of love and faith and service and consistency. You may have to find a different way to serve. You may have to do things differently. But you can never stop growing and maturing and taking your next step in faith. This is what I tell my community groups all the time. If you're not growing, you're dying. If you're not growing, you're dying. Both physically, spiritually, emotionally, you have to constantly be looking for ways to build your faith and be the hands and feet of Jesus as long as you live. Hold fast, church. Hang on. Keep it up. God, we come before you. I'm grateful for these letters that you wrote to the churches in Asia Minor, God. But for the challenge here to Thyatira, God, for us individually, God, open our eyes to how you see and know every part of us. 
our innermost being of who we are. God, change us because of who you are. God, as we look at that word of toleration, God, we know that there is some sin in us right now that you cannot stand. God, we pray that you open our eyes so that we, we will challenge that, we will fight back, and we will be consistently growing in you. In your name I pray.